Welcome to the Hands-On, Hands-Off Podcast, where we talk about manual therapy with clinicians, researchers, and educators. We are curious manual therapists interested in battling misinformation on both sides. We know manual therapy is not a blanket fix for everything, yet we also appreciate that it can be a valuable tool for many. So, please sit back and enjoy the show as we unravel the complexities of who, when, what, why, and maybe even how to apply or not apply manual therapy. Here are your hosts, Derek Cluley and Seth Peterson. Hello, everyone. This is Derek Cluley with the Hands On, Hands Off podcast. And today we are talking to Tim Furon. Uh, Tim Furon is somebody who, when we started thinking about the Hands On, Hands Off podcast, came to our uh, uh, top of our mind right off the bat. Tim Furon is a clinician, master clinician. Uh, if you ever get a chance to be with him, he is 100% all clinician and unapologetically so. Uh, certainly evidence-based practice and digest all of evidence. And so I think that's really important to also consider, but he is somebody who is working with patients all the time. And not only that, but I think the coolest thing about Tim Furon is, is that he has this in incredible drive to make everybody around him better. Uh, and just for the betterment of society and for the betterment of patients and whoever it might be, uh, those who have mentored under him have become better clinicians, better people, better humans um, by way of it. And so we're going to give you a little bit of a taste of that today on our podcast. Uh, Tim is a big friend of ours. And I'm looking really forward to having this conversation with him. And I hope that you're looking forward to hearing it as well. Sit back and welcome to the show. All right. So welcome back to the Hands On, Hands Off podcast. We've got myself, my co-host, Seth Peterson, back at the attack here. Uh, this is episode three. Super excited about our guest on today. Uh, none, other than, none other than Tim Fearon, uh, a clinical mastermind and extraordinaire. And this is going to be, I think, a really fun show as we move forward with this uh, guest. So, Tim, it's really nice to have you on the, the show with us. Thank you for your willingness to take time out of your, I know, very busy day uh, to be with us here and to uh, share some of your expertise and experiences with us. Uh, just by a quick introduction, Tim Fearon, if you don't know who he is, you should. But if you don't know who he is, uh, he is a practicing physical therapist in the Phoenix metro area. I don't know much about Phoenix. So I'll just leave it there. Uh, but he has his own private practice, uh, sees patients you know, pretty much in essentially a full-time um, status, but has been practicing for... I'll let him go over that because I, I think I've got the number, but I don't want to misstate it. I feel like I'll get in trouble if I do misstate it. Uh, but anyway, been a manual therapist for a very long time, been a friend of manual therapy, and has more importantly mentored tons and tons of very high-level manual therapists who then have gone on to also mentor lots of other manual therapists. So I think as we talk about like an analogy to sports, the coaching tree uh, with Tim Fearon is very large, very long, and I think it's really cool that you're here. So Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm going to start you off with a few easy questions before I get you to give us a little bit more introduction, because I think it's kind of fun to entertain our audience with this as well. Okay. I did not, full disclosure, did not give Tim these questions, so he has to think a little on the fly. So let's see where he's at. All <laughs> right. So the first question is, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, what would you choose to 
salmon. I could be a I could be an osprey and just eat salmon nonstop. <laughs> I don't I like want to be salmon. a grizzly bear; they stink. So I'll be an osprey. I think I like salmon as well too. But at seven a.m., I don't know if I could do it. But that's cool. <laughs> well, I've, I've had it round the clock. <laughs> that's fantastic. All right. So uh, if you could have uh, coffee or whatever beverage you select with any historical figure, who might you choose? Oh, so this is about the company. Uh, who would I choose? Um, wow, that is really, uh, that's broad. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I could keep up with Einstein, although he'd be terribly fascinating to talk to because uh yeah, I'm going to choose Einstein because he was alive when I was alive. And, oh, my God, an intellect like that. How can you not want to interface with him? Uh, and it, it's really phenomenal. Everybody's usually intimidated about uh, uh, engaging with Einstein's brain. But if you read his books, uh, his, his books, uh, one of his uh, famous things is that if you can't explain it simply, then you don't understand it well enough. And his books uh, personify that. Uh, it's really... Uh, to read the uh, uh, the uh, theory of relativity uh, is like, uh, wow, I'm intimidated. And halfway through the book, you're not intimidated at all because he makes it that way. So I would love it uh, if I could sit down and uh, and have a cup of coffee or a glass of Pinot with, uh, with Albert Einstein. I bet you that we'll get into some of that explanation for keeping things straightforward and simple as well. It sounds like something that you've done in the past. All right, so last question, last softball one here. Uh, what occupation, other than PT, would you like to try? Um, I think I think engineering, because uh, I, I used to, uh, in the past, I might have said something about politics because uh, I think the leadership is so abysmal, but I think it is hopeless. And therefore, I would rather do something that's predictable uh, and uh, requires creativity. Uh, and so my brother's an engineer. I just love when we do things that have nothing to do with uh, what he does at work. But we're figuring out things that get to be that need to be done. Uh, he's just got he's got, of course, an engineer's brain, but he can communicate like he's a uh, uh, like he's just a, a communications expert. So. I'm fascinated with engineering, but I'm exposed to it a little bit. So I guess that's the reason for it. Awesome. Well, I guess we do a little engineering ourselves as well sometimes. But uh, that's probably it. Yeah. So uh, you give our listeners uh, a little bit of a journey or a little bit of more information about yourself, what you do, a little bit of your journey uh, in manual physical therapy. Okay. Um let me go backwards with that and say the journey. Uh, uh, so the journey, I finished uh, PT school and was utterly bored. I uh, needed to get out because I thought it was just a terrible profession. Uh, and then I'll credit uh, one of our benefactors here. Uh, I went to a class that Stan Paris was doing, and I realized the problem was me uh, because he said more in one day than I had learned in my uh, two years in PT school. Uh, so that sent me back to... Uh, uh, graduate uh, school in Northwestern's musculoskeletal program, whereupon I finished uh, uh, with the ability to defend or, or, uh, my my exams, uh, oral defense, uh, nice papers, etc. And my patients were really underwhelmed because I wasn't any better. Uh, so uh, then I, it dawned on me that I was seeking 
uh, to improve clinically uh, by going to academicians, people that were experts at teaching, but not experts at doing what I wanted to do. Uh, so uh, I looked for people who actually did it and had been doing it for a long time. So the appropriate credit, the first mentor would have been Michael Moore. Uh, Michael Moore uh, trained under uh, Maggie Knott and then went to Norway and trained under Freddie Kaltenborn. Uh, so Michael Moore uh, was the first. And uh, we spent a lot of time uh, doing you know, classic uh, con ed courses. Uh, and then he stopped traveling and I was a little bit panicked because I had opened up a practice myself. I couldn't just move over uh, to uh, Folsom, California. Uh, so uh, on Michael's uh, recommendation, I got in touch with Barbara Stevens. Uh, Barbara Stevens had just trained with uh, Jeff Maitland uh, down under, uh, and she was willing to come over and structure classes. But once she came here, I mean, we did a year-long class, and uh, you know, meaning it was like eight different weekends in the year. Uh, and then people heard about this, and they wanted to do it as well. And so the second year, when I called her and see if she wanted to do it again, she says she said to me, "Yes, but we need to do it differently." And I said, "Okay, what's different?" She says you're going to bring patients. So that evolved into she would arrive on Thursday, and on Fridays she would come to the clinic with me, and we'd see patients. Uh, and I'd have to front up with my patients what I was doing, what I thought, where I was going, uh, and uh, and then the weekend was the class, and everybody else in the class, my class was done because I had Friday roasted at the end of a master clinician's uh, fingertips, uh, and it was uh, it was so gratifying that I started to do it. I did it again the following year, uh, and then I got to rotate between her, Margaret Anderson, who also trained with Jeff, and Dennis Morgan. Uh, Dennis uh, was a Maggie Knott, uh, Avianth, and Freddie uh, Countenborn, uh, uh, dis- not disciple. He was a student. Uh, when he came back to the States, he uh, decided that uh, that the laws in the States sucked. Uh, so he went to chiropractic school, not, not because he wanted to have the, the manipulation skills, which he already possessed, uh, rather than that because he wanted the autonomy to practice as he wanted to. So one of those three would come over each of the uh, Fridays and it was just, <laughs> it was parasympathetic nervous system stimulation uh, to front up and to show them here's where you are and have each one of them. Uh, uh, they all approached me differently. Uh, uh, the I always say that Barbara made me think analytically, unfailingly think analytically. Uh, Margaret insisted that I be soft softer than that, you can still do it. And Dennis insisted that I be creative and not just repeat what he showed me. Uh, and it was, uh, it was, it was really great. I had no idea I was building myself my own fellowship, uh, but that went on for a quarter of a century, uh, until it became, uh, that those guys, uh, kind of stopped seeing, seeing patients and all of a sudden people were calling me. And so like saying, Oh, I have to carry their water, uh, and to be as, they were to me to others who were seeking that kind of guidance and uh, that's a little spine tingling at first and then you realize you're doing it uh and you really want to pass on the passion uh and and a breadth of understanding which i don't think is out there i don't think there's a breadth of understanding uh but with them uh, uh i really had outrageously great mentorship and i feel obliged to pass it on and really and truly, every time that I'm 
teaching somebody or speaking, I feel like they're watching me and I better not let them down. You, you actually, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about or a lot about is the idea of mentorship. I've met, I unfortunately have not had an opportunity to work with Tim. I think I came too early in my fellowship training um, to uh, kind of snuck a, a, out before you got there, I guess, kind of thing. But I've spoken to so many of your mentees, and, and I emphasize so many because you have mentored a lot of PTs. And when you look at who these PTs are that you've mentored, they are you know phenomenal clinicians. You know, I think in terms of contemporary style, contemporary manual therapists, they're probably some of the the, the, the most respected clinicians um, that we um, have had. So I've been impressed with that. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit already. Um, maybe you're feeling a little bit like indebted to continuing mentorship. Uh, but is there anything else that like, like your passion for mentorship, especially, you know, our listeners who are, you know, everybody's a mentor to some extent. Um, you get plugged into these things, but then sometimes you go into more formal mentorship. What, what, what motivates you as a mentor? I think what motivates me uh, is to uh, I know I have a unique set of skills that people don't get exposed to in academia. They don't get exposed to it in research. It's too many uh, factors. It's multifactorial, which, of course, researchers hate. Uh, and the uh, uh, the ability to uh, to be creative uh, did happen uh, to not necessarily have to just uh, do the things that we learned uh, let me, let me couch it this way uh, with, uh, uh, I'll get back to the mentoring thing, but I want everybody to understand what words I'm using by choice. Uh, I started off, uh, deceiving myself that my problem was I didn't have manual skills. That was true. Okay. I developed the manual skills, but the manual skills, uh, to me are applicable. I look at patients in, in this sort of a stratification from, Intervention, they walk in the door, they can't do something, they need us to help them do something, i.e. manual therapy. Uh, that drives them to a rehab category where they're able to start recovering their own level of function, which is also manual therapy, manual therapy driven because they're not really quite capable yet. And so it counts on our skill set to bring them into one of the lost arts in PT is uh, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. I can create... Uh, an environment that allows a patient to do something that without me they can't do, but it's still rehab. Uh, and then that's to drive them to a place where they need to manage their problem. So I like to tell them that I don't get rid of pathology. Uh, what we're doing is trying to make it functionally inconsequential. And the final thing is to drive somebody prophylaxis, in other words, out the door. And I don't think people are taught that. Invariably, I meet when they come in for their mentoring time, what I see is people who want to manipulate when that was uh, becoming the big thing. There's my missing part. Uh, so basically, they, they, they want to get mentored in passive interventions, which is okay. But as I point out to them, there is zero patients who want to come in for the rest of their life with passive intervention. How are you taking them from point A to point B to point C to out the door? Uh, and that is what I like to... Uh, I, I like to teach that to people because they haven't seen it. And as soon as they see the value, they're gone. So meaning they know, they see the purpose. There, there's a, uh, 
there's a, there's a home base. There's not just a first base. Uh, and I love seeing people light up to that uh, and then to, to carry it on. Uh, and people ask me, hey, the so-and-so is teaching what you taught them. Does that bother you? Bother me. <laughs> That's what I want. If you're going to participate in the elevation of the field, then what you've got to do is participate. You've got you got to give. I had it given to me. Yes, I had to work my ass off for it. Uh, but uh, if I can pass that off and let other people work to get that same thing, now I've participated. And you know, in uh, one selfish way, I guess when I get to the point where uh, I might need some therapy intervention, there'll be people out there I know I can trust. So I guess that's what I like about it. I had I had it modeled for me. I can model it for others. Uh, and I love it when I hear what they're doing with it. So, yeah, it's very gratifying. And I appreciate that um, approach. And I think one of the things that we've seen in discussions about manual therapy is that it is and that it can actually be a, a passive event. Uh, and I think what you've just said there about it being something that is a bridge to an end um, more so than anything. Uh, yeah, I think that helps to ring true. And, but that's sometimes easy said, um, hard to do. And that, that, that conduit there that you provide is, is, is really impressive. I think it's one of the things, it's not even one of, it's the thing that bothers me the most when people start disparaging manual therapy. I want to know, will you define manual therapy for me, please? Uh, and it, it, usually it's some passive intervention. I said, well, it's no wonder it doesn't work for you. You're never taking a an individual uh, from a dysfunctional state to a functional state to a state where they don't need you, functional independence. Uh, and that, in fact, most people don't know this, but when the academy was being formed, uh, Joe Farrell was one of my teachers along the way, not, not a mentor, but somebody who taught me along the way. And we were... Uh, we were sitting around having a beer as manual therapists tend to do. And he was telling me the name of the ca academy was going to be uh, the American Academy of Orthopedic and Manual Physical Therapy. And the illusion there was that it's just a tool. It's a skill set. Uh, and it got voted down because they wanted people to focus on the manual aspect of it, which probably at that point in time was appropriate. Uh, but now people... Uh, uh, they say manual therapy, and, and what they're thinking is it's just what we do passively. And uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's like uh, you got the first base, and you think that's the run, and it's it's just not. It's 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 blind thinking. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, Tim. Well, just to piggyback off that, you know, I know because I've been in your clinic, right? I mean, you work people pretty hard. So what <laughs> you? I mean. <laughs> I think anybody that's been in your class. So, I mean, where do you think, not just manual therapists, but do you think, you know, where do you think physical therapists are missing the mark? Because I think we'd all probably agree when we see other PTs out there, not only as, you know, maybe the, as you talk about the bridge between manual therapy and exercise is missing, but, you know, working people hard seems to be something that, you know, we don't do as much in physical therapy. Yeah, I know. I, I want to be fair to everyone. And so uh, let, let's start with uh, we all had good teachers. We all had mediocre teachers. We all had bad teachers. Uh, so in an academic setting, their their job is to be a, a great uh, to be a, an excellent instructor. 
Uh, now that that takes them out of the clinic because you can't do both things at the same time. Well, I know some of them do 10 hours in the clinic. Well, I do 10 hours on Monday. Uh, so the, uh, uh, I don't think that they genuinely have all the variables in their experience bank of let's take therapeutic exercise. Everybody had the class and I don't use anything I ever learned in PT school with therapeutic exercise, but I do use the concepts. Uh, the same is true for uh, researchers. So uh, they're asked to answer an answerable question. Okay, they're constrained to doing that. And as I said to somebody who asked me that before, that's fantastic. They give us an undeniable pixel of the rainbow. And what walks in the door but the rainbow itself, right? And that's what you have to work with. Uh, so where have uh, PTs lost it? Uh, you know, I spend all day, every day. I'm never the first stop uh, for patients. And it used to be that I'd pat myself on the back and I would uh, say that, uh, oh, that's because I'm so good. And the reality of it is, uh, it's because it's so easy to be the best right now uh, that uh, there's just bad therapy being uh, done. There's People don't know what to do. Uh, and a lot of the uh, the patients per man hour drive makes it impossible to interface uh, in a way that's uh, uh, therapeutically exercising. So where did we lose it? One of the first things, uh, you know, PNF, I think, in the orthopedic world was viewed as, uh, oh, that's for the neuro. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> that's for everybody with a neuro system. It all depends upon how it is that you use it. Uh, so I think that people lost uh, interest in that because, hey, it was hard, is hard. Uh, and B, you have to learn how to do it. C, you have to break out of the book, you know, and, and make it be something that I know these concepts and I'm going to, I'm trying to get, for instance, a uh, an anteriorly positioned humeral head to stay back into the position it should be in. I don't want to posterior glided. I want them to posterior glided. In fact, I would like them to get a scapular retraction into depression so they get a posterior depression with the humeral head in the posterior position, the inferior, so that they can function from there. If I can do that with their motor system driving the train, I don't have to be hanging around doing the uh, the passive interventions. And I, I think where really we lost it uh, is that people don't see it modeled. If you don't see it modeled, you don't know what you're chasing. You don't know what you're trying to do. So, uh, you know, if there were people like me doing what I do who weren't taking in fellows, weren't doing mentoring time, well, they're partly at fault for the demise uh, because if somebody doesn't know what they're trying to, uh, to do, I would never do what I do in exercise had I not gone and spent time in Dennis Morgan's clinic and vice versa uh, because uh, uh, I saw what he could do and he would make up things because it was the right thing for that moment in time. Now, you can't learn that virtuoso kind of uh uh, behavior by reading a book and you don't get taught that in order to get led to the ability to pass your board exam you've got to see somebody who understands all those things and that was the foundation for where they begin to learn and your real lessons come with each patient walking in the door so if you don't see that modeled uh, i don't think it's very clear to the majority of people well what is it i'm trying to get so maybe that was a long-winded answer but that's uh that's where I think we fell off the wagon. If you don't know that you can make somebody better, 
Uh, I love this challenge now, and this is how I practice now. When I look at somebody when they walk in the door, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I could do whatever, my favorite manipulation, I could do my favorite muscle stretch, or could I get them to create this change with a genuinely therapeutic exercise that I can then show them a way to do at home? And if I can make that happen on day one, guess who walks out feeling like they have some control over their body? Right, so it feels good to, okay, great, yeah, their head is stuck there, I'm going to manipulate the OA, and they feel better. What if I can get them to do it, right? And then they eliminate their headache, and they get to a point where it's like, oh, this is what I need to do? I mean, because none of us can keep the patchwork. You can't put your finger, if you got 10 fingers and there's 100 holes in a dike, good luck, right? Because here comes a bunch of dikes in the door. <laughs> oh, man. So much as, as typical with you, Tim. Um, I mean, I, I kind of know your story really well. Um, and obviously I've been up to your clinic to spend time with you. And I think part of the reason, like I, I did that still this year, I think part of the reason is just you now all of us, we kind of get in our own little clinic setting and you feel comfortable, even if you're, it's, you know, as you alluded to, it's, it's easy to become the best PT in your clinic. Well, then where do you go from there? So you could sit back and become complacent. And so I like getting out even just to, to see, okay, you know, there are people that are thinking at this advanced level and, and it just ups the ante a little bit. I've seen Lori Hartman at Aons recently and it just ups the ante a little bit. And so I don't know if you have any recommendations for other PTs. I mean, how do you, how do you keep that fire burning and what would you recommend to you know, other younger PTs? Well, I think one of the things that happens, uh, I'm sure it still happens uh, uh, routinely across the country, is that you become intellectually isolated. Uh, so if you're not interfacing with somebody else, uh, somebody who, preferably somebody who challenges what you're doing, so you have to think about what it is that you're doing. And they practice in a slightly different way. Uh, so my wife dubbed it my clinical sparring partners. I loved it. Uh, because uh, those people, uh, they spur you to grow. And if you're in an isolated clinic by yourself, yeah, as you said, of course, you're the best uh, clinician in, in, in the office. Uh, but, oh, there's nobody else. Uh, I think, it, you know, it's one thing to go into the clinic with a peer. It's another thing to go into the clinic with somebody who's got, I don't care what it is, something above and beyond what you've got. One of the best things for me, uh, this is very doable for anybody. It's sometimes hard to get the, in the door of somebody else's clinic and to spend time seeing patients with them. Uh, but I, I think that clearly that's good. It's not the best. The best is to have somebody else watching you treat or to front up with your patients. There's no doubt you will strip your ego uh, and it will build you out as a better clinician. Uh that, but one of the things I think anybody can do, I was one time presenting at a, uh, it was a combined conference. You, you probably were, it might have even been there, Seth, but you know about it. It was uh, ortho, ortho uh, update on one side and neuro update on the other side. And I was having some serious disagreements with the, uh, the person presenting in the ortho update. So I decided I didn't really want to uh, upstage or interrupt the flow. Uh, so I walked out into the, the mezzanine between the two. Out there was this, uh, was this neuro presenter. Uh, she looked at me and she said, you're bored. And I, um, 
yeah, I guess, is that's because you're in the wrong session. You should be over here where you'll be the dumbest person in the class, not in that place where you're the smartest. And you know what? I went into that neuro session. I felt totally stupid. And, and I walked out much brighter and interested. And uh, that was probably the day I decided, you know what? I need to know more about the neuro system. It does drive everything that's musculoskeletal. Uh, so I've spent a, a fair amount of time going to neuro classes feeling stupid uh, and walking out smarter. Uh, and I think anybody can do that. Uh, but I get the dilemma. There's got to be, it's got to be reasonable. It's got to be proximal. Uh, for some people, it's, uh, you know, you got to go out of state to find somebody who you respect and you want to uh, learn from. Okay. Um, make that commitment. I've done it. I've done it a bunch. Uh, but uh, that's the first thing to look for that. And then whoever you work with right now, you know, uh, push each other, uh, challenge each other. But what are you doing with that one? How come? Well, why don't you do this? I mean, if you don't have somebody that you can uh, iron sharpens iron, and if you're not uh, crossing swords with somebody, then you're just dulling your blade. Yeah. And uh, so, Tim, I wanted to jump in here because you and I were having a little before we even got on the podcast here. Have a little discussion about sort of the the three legged stool or the three pillars or the Venn diagram or however you want it played of evidence based practice. And I think what we've alluded to a lot here is you know clinical experience, and it's actually why we wanted you on this show. And so our first guest was uh, Chad Cook, second guest Julie Fritz, our third guest Tim Fearon. And you know you're not uh, a NIH funded researcher you know, in an ivory tower, you are, I mean, I've seen your clinic. It's in the back of a, if it's still in the same place as the back of a building, kind of in a quasi basement, you know, <laughs> there's little space, not an ivory tower. Don't take that offensively. Uh, but, you know, I think it's easy for us to, you know, rely heavily on research and evidence. And it's good. I think it like from a big picture standpoint, it moves a profession forward in a sense. Um, You've talked already a little bit about the, you know, the clinical experience side of this. I guess if you had any magic wand or if you had like any sort of like recommendation for a student who is coming out that's relatively new, that's been ingrained, you know, research evidence, you know, search PubMed, find articles. And those get frustrating too, right? Because like you said, okay, here's this very small effect size. What I see in my clinic, though, is not this tiny effect size. You know, I see a bigger change on a an outcome measure or whatever it might be, or just the patient saying how much better they got. Uh, and you mentioned iron sharpens iron. I guess what, what recommendation would you have for a new clinician who's maybe feeling overwhelmed uh, in clinical practice uh, to, I guess, steer them in the right direction as opposed to um, getting lost and deviated in a wrong way? You know, I think uh, th that uh, if we take all three of those fears, the academics, the research, and the clinical part, uh, one thing that, that is a constant denominator, well, it's several things, but the first is that is the platform uh, that the profession stands on. Uh, pull any one of those legs and, and, and the profession falls. Uh, uh, but, there, but there's only one that actually sits on top of the platform it drives, and that's the clinicians. Uh, so the... Uh, uh, I lost my train of thought right there. So the, so what are they? Yeah, yeah sorry. I, I think the basic principles, the best clinicians I've ever seen, they do the basics unfailingly well. So well 
that they don't even think about it. And so when they they start to do something that you feel like is uh, a, a dramatic deviation, it's not. That was the first time they started thinking, right? Because the rest of it is automatic. And I'm sure that happens with researchers. They do the basics unfailingly well. Then they get to the intriguing part. And a good teacher, let's just talk about those, the really good teachers, they do the basics really well. And then they're playing with something to see, does this... Does this get the message through better? That's when they're beginning to have fun. So I think a new clinician has got to, A, get the basics down perfectly. There is nothing wrong with, I criticize uh, uh, the fact that uh, evidence-based medicine has become, unfortunately, evidence-driven medicine, i.e., if I don't have this algorithm, I can't do that. Rubbish, you got an N of one right in front of you. Uh, So... I tell people that they should be aware of it. It should be evidence-informed practice. You're foolish if you don't pay attention to the research because it's helpful. If nothing else, it's interesting, and it keeps you thinking when you're treating patients. Uh, So I I would tell anybody new uh, stepping out, get the basics down. You've got the basics in uh, academia. Uh, Then uh, have the basics about what's out there with research, Uh, and then the basics with the If you have the basics with clinic, i.e. body mechanics and uh, what's my goal, why am I doing this, where am I going, should it be passive, should it be active, Uh, then learning is much easier uh, because uh, you you create this default that you always do. uh, And then uh, challenge yourself every day. Dennis used to make us have, hey, this is C1 day. Uh, So what do you mean? Well, everybody you're seeing today, well, I got some ankle patients. Yeah, you're going to treat their C1. and so I, I, that's what I did because there's my mentor telling me to do that. Uh, and, and you begin to learn a great deal about C1 compared to C1. And you realize that, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, there's three of us here in this podcast. All three of us feel different at C1. It doesn't matter what the book said, uh, and they, what they feel like and how they function. Uh, I, I guess if I was to come up with one thing, I have an insatiable curiosity. Right. And everybody that I've ever seen that's uh, really uh, adept in the clinic, they're insatiably curious. So I won't segue into a whole lot of patients, uh, but the last patient I saw before this podcast, she came in, she had an ADI, an artificial disc placed in at C5-6 on top of a fusion that was at D6-7. But what she came in complaining about was pain in the retroorbital space and right at the occipital condyle on the right. That existed for 12 years before the fusion and before the ADI was placed in there. And 12 years, she had a headache and retroorbital pain. I was not even remotely interested in that 5.6 or 6.7, which is why she was sent over. And I confirmed with her, are you here because you'd like to try and change that, that headache you've had? And I'm happy to say that she's had nonstop, 24-7, head pain from 12 years ago. And today we treated her C1 and she left without a headache. Right? Ah, I have any idea what's going on down below at 5-6 and 6-7 where the doctor thinks she, that she came. But I know this, that patient walked out with a huge smile on her face now. 12 years, I, I just have to predict what's going to happen. But there it is. That's the game. It's I, I, I'm looking for... Can I make a change here? What makes me think I can't? Uh, 12 years, it's a lot of dysfunctional tissue. What makes me think I can't? Look where she's telling you the symptoms are. Can I change it right now? 
Uh, and then uh, to be honest, you got to be intellectually honest. So her uh, comparable sign was upper cervical extension uh, to that side, relatively speaking, a quadrant. Uh, and the uh, so when she comes back, what I'll look for is how did I do? Right. And, and, and if I've interrupted it for more than a day, I'll feel like, OK, that's worth mining. And you apply that curiosity to everybody. And going to the clinic is fun. I, yeah, I don't punch the clock. You know, I come in here and tickle my brain, which is uh, it's a it's a wonderful thing. But, you know, it's a, lot, it's a lot more wonderful once you've developed those skills, which have to start with the basics and then you build from there. And once you have that, man, going to work is playtime. Yeah, and I like that you described that reassessment kind of process because I don't really know if every PT learns that. They definitely don't do it if you see them actually practice in the clinic. Yeah, but it seems like going through fellowship. It was new, you know, news to all the fellows in training for the most part. So, yeah, it's it's easy to have confirmation bias. Aha, there I did that. You must be better. It's a lot harder to be intellectually honest and reassess in front of the patient. And tell the patient why. So the patient can look at you and say, that didn't work. Right, let me show you. Or, hey, look at that. It's interesting. The, uh, I think a lot of PTs, maybe this is just a false impression that I have, but we always, we're either searching for a holy grail or overcomplicating things. And <laughs> like you said, it's just a matter of doing those things basic. Well, you know, Seth, you alluded to it. Uh, whole process of, and it's so simple, right? It's, you know, test something, treat it, reassess it. You know, if it didn't work, that's fine too. If it works, that's fine as well. But that process, that, that basic approach to care for whatever reason, even as a, a, a faculty member now, um, it's interesting that that's hard to get people to do that even that basic level thing consistently. So I think, like you said, just, you know, getting used to those basics. You can't do the basics well. You can't do the complicated things at all uh, or the complex approaches to care. But we always seem to want to kind of get to that end point sometimes. It's a little bit like not wanting to know the conclusions of a research study. You do the research and you get no conclusions. Well, what did we learn? You know, and if if you get, I mean, I really don't understand how anybody practices without doing it. It's intellectual dishonesty, plain and simple. Uh, so you do the math problem and never put in the solution. <laughs> it's just silly. Tim, you talked about creativity, which I think is interesting because, you know, I did these these interviews with Dennis Morgan, who said that he would challenge people every day to do something they've never done before. And then Barb, who said, um, this was off the interview. She said every Friday, or not every Friday, I think it was, I'm thinking end of the week, but I think she said it was every day at the end of the day. So the last patient of the day, she would try and do something she's never done before. So they're constantly, like you alluded to, trying to tickle their brain, keep themselves curious. But yet you see a lot of PTs in the clinic talk about them being bored or feeling like they've figured out uh, orthopedic PT is easy, things like that. So, yeah, I wonder if you had any, any thoughts about what you've seen with the mentors that come through your clinic. Yeah, if they think orthopedic PT is easy, I'll, I'll say this. What most people do is they, they master a given set of things and everybody walks in the door and gets one of those given set of things. If they're out of things, they're out of things, you know. So uh, one of the most obvious ones. I have a great deal of respect for MDT. I'm not disparaging it. However, uh, 
if there's a, a response to the repeated movements, uh, uh, great. And if there's not, they're non-responders. Wait a minute. They didn't respond to that. Okay, so what other uh, arrows do you have in your quiver? Uh, and, you know, I because Barb and Dennis were my mentors, yes, I have to admit that every day I'm trying to think, can I do something in a different way than I've ever done before? Now, there are some times where it's sort of like the seated manipulation, for example. I sucked at it at first, and so I decided that, you know what, everybody I see, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and, and, and now I'm really good at it. It's my preferred. Uh, so the, uh, there are times when the, there is a time for getting your skill set where I'm just going to work on fill in the blank. But you don't get your creativity skill set if you don't work on being creative with something. Uh, and I had that same, uh, I, I, I don't want to say, I think every day I think that, and I, I sort of disparage myself of, ah, you didn't do anything that, that you've never done today. Guess what happens the next day? It's like every patient. <laughs> so I think people should do that or you won't get creative. Uh, and I know that the, the researchers are like, whoa, 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 creative. Uh, wait, we still reassess. We still look for the conclusion. Right. And if the conclusion is bad, okay, I, you got to know how to back your way out of it. Uh, so it's an N of one to keep the researchers who might listen to this uh, uh, in check that it's an N of one. And that's what every patient is that walks in the door. And, uh, you know, intellectual honesty is uh, it's your strongest asset. Right? If you don't have it, then you, you know, you're just going through a dance. Go to politics. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting um, piece between research and clinical practice. And, you know, there's great clinicians, there's great researchers. And I think the great researchers understand the great clinicians. And it's a matter of trying to figure out, okay, how do you encapsulate what we have as a good idea of, you know, as effective intervention? And then you put things through the research and, you know, statistics and, you know, means and everything regressing to those things kind of comes out and you go, okay, well, Eh, that's really not that great. But then, but I always look at research in a way too, like in that end of one, you'll have those people who will have, you know, those great responses, even within a research study and those that don't, I think, um, responder analysis, that kind of stuff might be interesting, but I don't think it'll ever touch and quite get us to what you're actually seeing in clinical practice, nor should it try to replace that, but it just gets us like some, some direction of where we need to go with that. Um, we're getting close toward the, oh, go ahead. I, I think it's extremely valuable, you know, and I would like uh, my uh, P value to be less than 0.1 every time that it is that I do something with a patient. Uh, it's extremely valuable to know that it's there, uh, but everybody sees the patients who walk in with things that would never let them in any study. Too many variables, too many complications, et cetera. That's just reality. 100%. I'm just glad that we got you to say P value, though. <laughs> i read that stuff you know it's valuable. I know. I know i know you absolutely do um so uh as we get close toward the end of the show here i you know if you had sort of this like magic wand i guess if you will what do you what do you hope orthopedic physical therapy orthopedic manual physical therapy maybe more broad ET looks like in, in 10 years? What do you think are some of the issues that we have? What do you hope that it looks like and what changes? Uh, in 10 years, I hope what's happening is what everybody said was going to happen in 2020, and that is that patients recognize that 
uh, the physical therapists or, or the movement experts uh, and the patients walk in the door to see us first. Uh, I consider myself the arch enemy of a surgeon, uh, and I consider myself uh, a front line that should be in front of the physiatrist. I mean, the interventions uh, dominate the world right now. First intervention should be, hey, I got a physical problem. I should see a physical therapist. Now we should make a decision. What is the problem? Is it something about, uh, is it a movement problem? Okay, if it's a movement problem, can we restore the movement? If it's a motor control problem, okay, good. Then hands off, get them doing the motor control uh, so that they they do everything they, the patients, uh, get they do everything that they can do prior to being led down the mill of these interventions. Uh, I really do think... Uh, when I stop seeing patients, I am going to write this book, and it'll be something like uh, 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 Your Body and Owner's Manual, uh, that I, I believe what happens after 40-some-odd years of being in the clinic here and about 40 years in the same region, I, I've known some patients for 30, 35 more years, uh, and the people who do their appropriate maintenance, uh, they do really well. They come in their patients for brief periods of time. I would like to be all of these people's, I would like to see other people, not just me. I would like to see physical therapy be uh, the place where people go and they see their dentist and they do this in order to maintain their teeth. People go to their physical therapist and they, okay, great, you're doing a great job with this. Here's what you need to be able to uh, do. And if you don't need to see them again, you don't. One of my favorite patients is a guy who comes in every January 2nd or thereabouts. Uh, and his usual remark is that, uh, I'm doing great, right? But I'm older. I need to know where my weak links are. What should I do? Uh, so I would like to see physical therapy be an outpatient provider where uh, the general public walks in and the PT uh, in an honest way decides, do they need an intervention that I can do and they need me to do this? Okay. Do they need a series of that? Okay. Should I line them up for a package of that and do it with no, uh, with a recidivism and that never stops? Of course not. Do they need rehab? Ah, let me start them, then show them. Do they just need management? Uh, if they need management, then you teach them what to do, what not to do. Uh, and then finally, is it just prophylaxis? Hey, you know what? You don't need me. Just do this to stay out of here. We should be that musculoskeletal provider where the patient walks in and knows they'll get an honest answer. Uh, and we should deliver a service, not a widget. We're not a commodity sales. Love every bit of that. Absolutely, 100%. Good. Beth, I don't know if you have anything else that you need to ask. I, um, all I want to say is just I appreciate your time and your energy and your passion for us. <laughs> I've been accused of uh, excessive energy by everybody except my patients when they get better. <laughs> On the way, they might complain, but when they get out the door, they turn around and say, you know, I do know. You don't have to tell me. <laughs> I, Seth, I can't hear you. We're getting ready to talk, but we cannot hear you, Seth. And Seth always has wise words, so we have to hear it. Wise. Thanks for spreading the knowledge, Tim. Good to see you. Hey, it's my pleasure. You guys are doing the spreading. You know, uh, there's generational needs, right? You got to have the old guys. I'm happy to be the silverback. Young guys with these uh, fancy microphones. You guys are connecting the world to the three of us having a conversation. So we got to do something like that. The PT's got to actually deliver 
so that you have something to deliver that's got veracity. I'm just appreciative that you called me young, so I'm going to leave it right there. Okay, good. <laughs> young than I. Right. And done. Thank you for listening to the Hands On, Hands Off podcast. Be sure to visit the Duke CMET, that's C-E-M-M-T, website for more resources and materials. That's sites.duke.edu slash CMET. And remember, please subscribe to our podcast.